Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Powers in Play. And uh, usually we deal with uh, powers in uh, Europe, in uh, the Americas, and we are a bit ignoring China. Now, it must uh, seem uh, a bit natural because uh, having just hosted uh, U.S. President Biden here and uh, his trip, of course, included the uh, Persian or Arabian Gulf too, and with Russia fighting uh, the Ukraine, Europe and the Middle East um, seem to take center stage. But behind all of that is there is China. And our focus today is the interplay between the old powers and the emerging ones, such as India, and um, the one power which seems to steadily move from the uh, number three spot in the world a few decades ago to number two, and perhaps um, in the decades ahead, taking over from the United States the uh, lead in the world. Uh, with us today, we are very um, uh, glad to have uh, Caris Witte at Signal, and we will soon hear what is Signal um, and what is your own role there. Welcome, Caris. Thank you so much. Also, of course, our regulars, uh, former Deputy uh, Foreign Minister and Israeli Ambassador to Washington, Danny Ayalon. Hi, Danny. Hi. And the retired Colonel uh, Ruven Ben Shalom, um, who is um, at the ICT, the uh, uh, Counterterrorism um, Institute uh, at Herzliya, as well as a cross-cultural analyst. So, Caris, first, um, as a newcomer, hopefully not your only visit here. We will see more of you uh, in the near future. Uh, what is Signal and um, what is uh, China uh, having in mind? Sino-Israel Global Network and Academic Leadership. It's a mouthful, but uh, Signal helps us communicate more smoothly. Um, we established the organization in 2011, and we do academia and policy. So we established the field of Israel studies in China at the university level back in 2011. And there are now over 20 universities which have Israel studies courses and a number of programs that have seen in the past 10 or so years, over 25,000 students learning about Israel when prior to that, no one ever had. Uh, and we also do policy. We work with influential policy advisors in Beijing, and we take a lot of experts and professionals, uh, go ex-government officials, et cetera, to China to meet with those who- And back. 
we do bring them back so far, uh, to meet with um, the policy advisors, share insights, ideas, and the idea is to bring, you know, up until 2010 or so, uh, the attitude towards Israel was very biased. It was very much impacted by the uh, many ambassadors from China who would go to the Muslim states, Arab countries, come back, speak about Israel, not in, in the most positive way. And also, though all of those countries had ambassadors in China, in Beijing, we didn't have any until uh, 1992, and then we had one. So it's one against you know, almost uh, 150 or more uh, different players who are speaking against Israel. Uh, things started changing in 2010, so we entered in order to push that positive direction forward and create a more accurate understanding on both sides. Um, so is that um, a mini APEC uh, in a Chinese version, uh, lobbying or informing the Chinese about Israel and vice versa? There's no lobbying. It's very academic uh, and it's very professional. So um, it, we're talking about straight, pure courses on Israel, as you would have in a university here in Israel about China or about Israel. And when we're talking on the professional side, it's very much a dialogue of both sides discussing mutual interests. I wouldn't compare it to an APEC, although people like to compare to whatever they can to sort of make it simpler. Now, uh, over the last 10 or 12 years, and certainly in the last four or five years, China has become a very serious player, militarily, politically, economically, uh, um, societally with, with hundreds of millions of tourists traveling abroad around the world. Uh, and um, so when Biden came to this region, everybody talked about oil, very important. Everyone talked about Iran and uh, going to Saudi Arabia, the issue of the Ukraine war, all these things are extremely important, but behind every single one of them is China. And as we saw, Biden said, I'm not going to allow a vacuum to be created in the Middle East. And what we see, which is so fascinating, uh, in the Obama and the uh, Trump administrations, the pivot to Asia implied leaving the Middle East. Now we see that the Biden administration has recognized a pivot to Asia means strengthening your position in the Middle East. It's absolutely necessary if uh, the U.S. wants to be su successful. Danny, uh, you're a very seasoned diplomat, also a politician. Um, what is the perception of China in uh, policy-making circles, both in Jerusalem and Washington? Well, I think in both places, uh, I'm not sure it is all very accurate, and it's all seen through uh, the glass of uh, previous perceptions, ideology, and maybe some wishful thinking as well. You know, in the United States, they see... Um, China as, as a rival, uh, soon even to become an enemy, maybe. But uh, you see, the U.S. as a superpower, and you see superpowers along history, they need a rival in order to keep their own strength, to keep their own agenda, and uh, to be on, on edge and, um, and, and sharp. So for them, the, the Chinese uh, are actually replacing um, Soviet Union in terms of global uh, rivalry, uh, global rivalry in terms of political influence, in terms of uh, command of uh, resources, and of course, waterways uh, control, and whatever you have, even, even in space. But space it's, it's a bit uh, strange, because um, if you go back to the uh, old 
Realpolitik School of Nixon and Kissinger, when the Soviet Union was uh, the arch rival, they tried to, to uh, triangulate, as they call it, by going to China and um, uh, win it from dependence on the Soviet Union and uh, play with it against the common adversary. Right now, when Putin uh, is um, in his Ukraine war, why uh, doesn't uh, Washington try to be on Beijing's good side? Of course, Samir, in 1972, landscape and geopolitics was totally different than what it is uh, today. In 1972, they really thought of China as a counterweight to uh, the Soviet Union. And I think in, in retrospect, I'm sure um, that Nixon, I'm not sure about Kissinger, who is very sophisticated, but Nixon may be turning in his grave because he gave China the status, uh, a place in the among the P5 in the Security Council. Uh, later on, Obama gave it um, a, a membership of the World Trade uh, uh, Organization. So all these- But this was just a recognition yes. of, of uh, uh, its rights. In fact, uh, just because uh, Jiang Kai-shek was uh, given the status of one of the big five, and then, uh, of course, uh, ran away to Formosa, to Taiwan, uh, didn't make uh, his uh, uh, country one of uh, the big five You're powers. Absolutely right. But, you know, in Washington, there was kind of a, a almost a renegade kind of a school of thoughts that, uh, uh, yes, they should have come to China, but they gave China too much to let it grow into in in proportion way now to become this monster. Some have said they should have, well, Taiwan, of course, was kind of an abnormal uh, member in the Security Council, but some said they should have given the, the, the seat in the Security Council to Japan. Uh, now, Reuven, uh, as a seasoned um, military officer, but also uh, uh, very uh, much experienced in dealings with the Chinese as well as with the Americans and, and others. The uh, U.S. military, uh, because it needs uh, documents, doctrine uh, for acquisition, for training, it must have um, a threat of reference. And they decided after 20 years of the global war of terror that they should go back to what they call a near peer adversary. And for them, China is what they call their pacing adversary. They focus on China, they build their force, they uh, draw their plans as against uh, China. Is it realistic to look at it uh, this way? I think maybe the way you worded your question is downplaying the situation, because it's like some, some may ask, uh, does Israel have Egypt, right, in our scopes? And the answer is, we have a great peace with Egypt, but since they're the most powerful in the region, it makes sense for us to have war games against them. But I think with when I watch the rhetoric of Americans and Chinese the last 20 years, I see that this is uh, very deep. It's emotional almost with Americans. My American friends 20 years ago were talking about future dogfights with Chinese pilots uh, and talking from words like rivals. Today, it's certainly enemy. You hear the rhetoric by leadership. H.R. Uh, McMaster, when he was in his, uh, in his role as National Security, National Security Advisor. Advisor, and the book that he wrote, you know, very outlines, you know, China is a threat to us. Uh, I think most military officers today will think that it's not just, you know, to have this sketch of preparing ourselves, but that is our next war. 
Now, when you speak to the Chinese, it's interesting for me. I think maybe you, Carice, you'll be able to give a better perspective. But what I hear from the Chinese is like these naive thoughts like, what do they want from us? Why do they think these things? We don't want that. You know, and it's, it's fascinating to watch that. I think maybe there's a difference between the people, uh, uh, military officers that I meet, and the leadership and the grand long-term strategy that I'm not sure we know what it is, okay? Because I think there is a grand strategy. Uh, when you listen to the rhetoric by Xi Jinping, you know, we had 100 years of humiliation. Now we're correcting. You know, it's our turn now. And also, I think we have this Western mentality of seeing, especially here in our region, we're the good guys and we have the bad guys, the terrorists, all these evil entities. So it's easy to go to that paradigm. On the other hand, if I'm Chinese, look, we're a people of one and a half billion people, right? We have a 4,000-year history. By the billion way, and a half. Billion and a half. And uh, we can relate to you guys, the Jews, because we both have 4,000 years of history. Now, these, together, we are a billion and a half and 10 million. Yes. Now... These Americans, a few hundred million, a few hundred years, who do they think they are? Okay, so last century they were dominant, but uh, guys, the game is over. You know, it's our turn. And I think the word displacement is maybe the best because slowly they're nudging and displacing the United States in many fields. Can I have a, a little Go story ahead. here? Uh, when Bibi Netanyahu first met uh, Zemin at the time. John Zemin. John Zemin. And uh, he asked him, what do you think about the French Revolution? Zemin said, too early to judge. No, it's not Bibi and uh, John Zemin. I made it Bibi and Zemin. No, it's, it's Kissinger and, and Joe and Lai. And it turns out that he meant the, the French uh, rebellion of sorts a year earlier in 1968. But it's a, it's well, a good to, story. Right. Let's, let's so give... To, to emphasize what Reuven says about their perspective of history. It's true. But... but Right now in Israel, every story uh, sticks to Bibi Netanyahu, so <laughs> let, right. let, him, let him have it. Karis, uh, um, regarding uh, what uh, uh, Reuven just related, up until a few years ago, it seemed as if uh, militarily or strategically, China was looking inward. It was on a defensive mode. It wanted, of course, to uh, protect the regime, um, because uh, what you hear, especially from the Trump administration at the time, was not the government of China, but the CCP, the, commun the Chinese Communist Party, as if it's a separate uh, entity. But in recent years, we have seen uh, a more proactive uh, Chinese strategy, especially in the South uh, China Sea, in the uh, reefs, uh, perhaps expanding towards Indonesia and other countries, which, which uh, put those countries on edge in, um, in the Pacific. So where is China headed now? First of all, um, this transition in and it of itself is very interesting. China was referred to as the sleeping giant. And some of the discussion that you just had refers to the fact that the US thought as China became more wealthy, it would become more like the Americans, more like Democrats or democracy. Uh, capitalism, democracy would be the, their choice, as we saw in other Asian countries. Um, when the, it became crystal clear, and only after it became crystal clear that nobody at, in the US administration could avoid it, they realized that China is very Chinese. And by the way, some of the reason that China has taken this turn since 2008 was the subprime crash that not only was a disaster 
in the Western world, but also uh, the Western world did not come out of it well. Two years later, I was in Beijing at a meeting at the Central Party School where I was the only non-Chinese person in the room, very fortunate to be there. And they started to talk about the fact that, and this is 2000, early 2011, that they maybe could start to look at their own ways of doing things as being better. This idea that they had a better way is not uh, um, ancient. Uh, well, actually, it is ancient, but they, after the 100 years of humiliation, they thought that maybe they were wrong and they should follow the Western way. We, the West, showed them that that is not the way to go. You can uh, make huge mistakes that have very long-term negative effects. So the Chinese started to move away from that. Um, now, and for many, many decades, the goal has been national rejuvenation. And we're seeing that national rejuvenation from 100 years of humiliation that uh, Reuven referred to, to we are uh, returning to our place of centrality. If you look at the, the character for China, it's, a it's like a square or rectangle with a line down the middle. We are at the center. The Middle Kingdom. Exactly. True and and um, uh, Deng Xiaoping was aware of the potential concern that the world might have as China rediscovered its own strength. So he had a policy of hide and bide. We're going to hide our abilities and bide our time. Xi Jinping came in and said, enough with that. We're strong enough. We're capable enough. Now's our time. The uh, winds are shifting in the world globally, like the subprime, like the repeated U.S. wars uh, in the Middle East that didn't really achieve their goals and drained a lot of uh, human and financial resources from the U.S. Xi Jinping jumped on that and said, OK, now's our time. The East is rising. West is declining. So Everything that you have both said, more or less, I would generally agree with, that um, in the process of national rejuvenation, we can see China in its own way, and this is what we need to be very aware of. It's not going to do things the way we do it in the West. They're not going to you know, take their spears and their shields and run out and conquer. They're going to do it in a um, uh, using things like the Belt and Road Initiative, which went from being just an idea to being a geostrategic, geoeconomic tool for building a consensus among the global south to support Chinese positions in the United Nations, where China has gained uh, le leadership roles in 15 of the most significant departments of the United Nations. Let's turn to uh, China and Israel. Um, the uh, first important high-level uh, contact after the um, relationship was established, as you said, in the early 90s, was uh, when uh, Rabin came to uh, Beijing uh, just a few weeks after the Oslo Agreement uh, was signed. And uh, on that trip, um, the foreign ministry uh, briefed a group of us, Israeli journalists, and what they emphasized was that there are three issues on which there will never be any Chinese concession. And these are Taiwan, Tibet, and Hong Kong. Um, so yes, the lesson uh, was learned. Um, uh, and except for uh, Taiwan, uh, with which Israel uh, has and uh, has had uh, trade relations and perhaps some military technology, um, Israel uh, has no dog in these fights. What do the uh, uh, Chinese authorities expect from Israel right now? 
It's interesting that you ask it in that way because it's true. China does have expectations. It doesn't necessarily dictate. It sort of lays out its general uh, rules uh, for itself and says, now we expect all of you to conform or cooperate. And um, But we must remember that when it comes to Israel, China is extremely clear on which side we're on. There's no issue. People say we have to choose sides. Israel has a side. We've had a side for a very long time. China's very aware of that side, and it's not China. Uh, China says we are not going to take over uh, the veto role that the United States plays for Israel in the Security Council, and we are not going to be developing uh, advanced military technology together anytime in the near to mid uh, term future. So well, they they did in the 1980s. Uh, part of uh, the uh, renewed. Uh, Chinese defense industry came from Israel. But that ended, as we all know, with the Falcon and the Harpy in 2000, 2004. That was a hermetically sealed issue, and uh, it's not going to change. Not uh, when you look at the the lay of the land. Under American pressure. But I also want to say that was American pressure, and there is some American pressure now, new pressure on nanotechnology and AI, things that will help China gain the global lead in the most cutting-edge technologies that really will empower whatever nation runs them to be the superpower of the world. But I think we have to remember that one of the core issues that uh, we're facing, the world is facing, is that of values. What is behind the leadership of uh, Xi Jinping and China and the Communist Party ethos? And what is behind the leadership of the United States and that ethos? Uh, what are the, um, is, it, is it rule by law or rule of law? And what does it mean for the future if China does become a superpower? When we look at China's domestic policies and we see, are they really suited to what um, our lifestyle, uh, Western lifestyle, even many Asian states? Uh, so we need to ask ourselves, um, what, what does it mean for China to take the lead? So you're leaving this question open. You're not... Uh volunteering an answer. Not right? yet. <laughs> Food for thought. Too early to judge. Uh, Danny, um, is Israel between an American rock and a Chinese hard place? Well, it seem, certainly seems that the feeling in, in Jerusalem, and uh, I do uh, take what Kari said, uh, and I wholeheartedly agree. We are squarely in the American side for obvious reasons. But uh, Israel uh, failed to realize what China meant or the, th- the menace or the threat that uh, China uh, was perceived as in Washington, D.C. And Kariz mentioned the Falcon. She mentioned uh, the, the Harpies. I was in the midst of these two, uh, I would say, fiascos. Um, obviously. Obviously, well, yes. Yeah. There was another <laughs> there was uh, a, another issue with, uh, you know, where the Americans accused us that uh, the, the fighter, the, the, the new jet uh, uh, fighter. J, J-10. Was La looked, Vie, La Vie, to, yeah, yeah, looked yeah. very similar to, to the La Vie, and they do not forget it uh, uh, until now. And we had to very abruptly stop these two uh, deals, Harpies and Falcon. With the Falcon, we even had to pay like $300 million. Just to remind our viewers, the Falcon was a Russian-made transport plane, which Israel fitted with electronics 
for use by the Chinese Air Force. Right. The Russian only uh, supplied the platform, the fuselage, and all the avionics and the um, um, warfare, um, whatever, electronic. The electronic warfare and whatever was was inside. And after the deal was signed, the Americans, you know, put their foot down. We had to do it. It was great embarrassment against the Chinese because at that time, Zemin, the same Zemin. Came to see Ehud Barak. Yes, he came to Israel. I think it was the first Probably the last. And only. The year 2000. Only until now. Yes. Yeah. Was even, they, they put him in a kibbutz for a whole weekend. He really came out really with marvelous thing, thinking about Israel. And then they told him about the Falcon. And I think that was really a, uh, a real um, harsh and, and, and crush into, into reality. And he lost face personally. And he, yes, yes. And in any case, so, so in Israel, uh, it took a long time to realize. We thought, you know, as Israelis, we always are uh, super smart. We thought that we can navigate actually between these two giants. Well, it was not to be. We can hardly find our own way, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless. And now I think the pervasive um, thinking in Jerusalem is that, yes, we are with the United States on all fronts. We just should do it in a way that will not affront the Chinese too much. Kenel Ben Shalom, um, now that uh, we are in the uh, uh, fifth month of the Ukraine war, there are skeptics who say, well, we saw that Russia is basically a paper tiger. We believe that the Russian military machine is powerful, but it turns out that the Ukrainians um, have stopped it. Of course, it's a war of attrition. Maybe the Chinese are like the Russians. Maybe they are not, as at least uh, the uh, PLA army, the, uh, the most uh, uh, massive part of the uh, uh, People's Liberation uh, Military. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's your uh, read on that? Interesting question, because I think we see it with a lot of our rivals. Many years ago, we used to look down at Hezbollah fighters. We even had this Israeli term, Hezbollah, which is really downgrading. Today, you will not hear IDF soldiers say that. We have a formidable army that we face, Hezbollah fighters. And we see this in, in other arenas, too. Um, Sometimes we have Iranians come out, right? We have this a lot of PR around this new plane. It looks like a stupid fiberglass mock-up, right? What? But but these things, I think sometimes maybe if it's a trick on the other side to make us think, you know, that they're not as good as they are. China's, I think, totally different. And I think we can't equate China and Russia at all. And it's true that Russia in recent years has been teaching us, you know, that they're much stronger than they are. I think maybe also they're awakening to the what modern technology can do. And the next wars will be all different because of Ukraine. China, I think, have the, the advantage of size. And I think we can't overlook that in every aspect. A lot of what we discussed here today has cultural aspects. That's my favorite topic. You know that. And I think many of our misunderstandings are because, because of size. Because when you are the size of China, there are considerations and things you can or cannot do that a small country like Israel, we can sit in a studio now and analyze it as much as we can. We're a tiny country. We have a, a, our flexibility comes from our size, right? So I think also militarily, this is the case. Um, I've seen things with my own eyes, even visiting an official visit in China. When you see the magnitude of their force, of how much they can allocate resources to a certain mission, it's incredible. I think their cyber capabilities today are incredible, mainly because they can sit down thousands of people on a mission and crack it and do what they want to do. So, yeah, you could look at the J-20 and you could ask, is it a better fifth generation fighter than the F-22? Yes or no? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, look down on anything that has to do with technology from space to cyber to stealth warfare. I think all of that is something that 
Someday, if God forbid this is a war, I think we'll see a very serious and challenging rival. But if there is a cross-straits operation against um, the um, Taiwanese mainland, or at least the outlying mm -hmm. islands, and, and uh, a renewed Kemoyan Matsu uh, crisis? Okay, so I think that question is not military, it's political. I think they could easily do it, right? They could take Taiwan tomorrow. What's the big deal? And I think the more we progress phys physically, they could take what it. What would be left? Oh, I'm saying physically, they could overrun it tomorrow. That's not the issue. The issue is, of course, political. And for me, the big question is, do the Chinese see themselves as stakeholders in the world order? Or are they challenging the world order? And they're saying, no, we're, we're going to change the world order. And I think we're more going to changing world order. And also, I think... Looking at the, this goes back to the war in Ukraine. Many of us like wake up to this uh, to this fact that you know what, maybe our calculations aren't right. You know, a, a force like Russia can just go and do whatever they want to do. Maybe the Chinese watch that and say, you know what, the time will come when we will just go and do what we want to do. And what are they going to do? What are the Americans going to do to us? And also, it's a big question: what is going to be the footprint of the United States in that region? You know, something that maybe this. Uh, this displacing of China means that the Americans will slowly, slowly re retrieve their forces and their alliances in that region, and what, there'll be regional dominance by China. But if there is an American-Taiwanese crisis, and the Taiwanese disengage from the Americans, they may decide to go nuclear. Absolutely. All could happen. Can I, can I yes, just please, throw Carissa. in a couple of points there? First of all, uh, I think that we have to remember some of the takeaways that I believe uh, the leadership of China sees from the Ukraine war is that propaganda and, um, and uh, military strength does not win a war. And even after we saw Putin be so successful in Syria, we now look at Ukraine and, and the Chinese, one of the takeaways I think that we will see them discussing in the near future is battle experience matters. And I know the Chinese have been seeking battle experience even by being uh, peacekeepers for the United Nations. And uh, in a conference in 2019, I was in uh, China and um, one of the Chinese generals stood up and said to the UN representative who was on the stage, why are you not using more of our troops in the peacekeeping missions? Why would that be so important? Because they need some kind of experience and all the exercises in the world don't equal Real battle experience. Interesting. That's like a negative way of looking at it. I, I was maybe naive. I thought it's that that's it's that stakeholder position. We want to be contribute to the world order and and play the part of observers. As as um, uh, we know, um, Admiral Yamamoto was a naval attaché in Washington when Japan prepared uh, for. So please, Carissa. so you're pessimistic well, on this. I, I don't know what you mean by pessimistic. I think there's less chance of China wanting to invade. Taiwan. I also mm. think that it motivated China to um, return more to the direction of win without shooting a bullet, the old Sun Tzu uh, idea. Um, Coerce. I, I also, I, I mean, I don't know, it, coercion, enticement, a range of tools, and they have so many with Taiwan. But so far, I think China has an interest in a strong Taiwan as a, as a trading partner, economic partner. I think they... Uh... They definitely don't want to um, have uh, be welcomed by rubble when they arrive. Hmm. T, uh, TCMS, TSMC, TSMC, the chip, uh, the most important chip producer in the world is in Taiwan. And that is one of the reasons why, in my opinion, there's more chance of the United States defending Taiwan against any kind of invasion because chips, people say uh, data is the new oil. I think chips are the new oil because mm. without chips, you can't so do much So when the chips data. are down, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, but I want to say just one word on, on um, 
the reshaping the order or changing the order. It's very much discussed, and, and I agree that Russia is very is more of a revanchist. They want to change it, but China has benefited so much, and and you hear it all the time. It's benefited in every way from the current world order. Do they want to reshape it? One hundred percent. Xi Jinping says we are going to reshape the global order to better suit China, which deserves a position of recognition among the nations. But reshaping is not totally, you know, blowing it out of the water. But um, if we uh, take the uh, Iran issue, for instance, uh, and again, looking at it from an Israeli perspective, we understand that uh, China uh, does not want nuclear proliferation around the world. It wants to freeze the situation as it is. Once it has the bomb, India followed it, Pakistan followed India, and enough is enough. There is also the issue of oil. China um, is export is uh, importing uh, oil, and Iran is of course one of its uh, uh, partners and potentially more more so. And there's also Islam with some 100 million Chinese Muslims. So where no 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 no, no. ten no? ten million ten million twelve, 12 million twelve million Hui Muslims and about 12 million Uyghur Muslims. But this was before we started That's how they the talk show. about the Israelis. <laughs> the Chinese say, how do you achieve so much, you Jews around the world, how do you achieve so much when you're 100 million people in the world? <laughs> no, because we speak like uh, 100 million. Uh, there are 100 million Christians, though, no, in China. Uyghur, yes. Uyghurs? Yes. Christians. Christians. Now, um, if you take all of these issues, uh, some of them, of course, um, in contradiction to each other, some of them converging. Where does Chinese policy come down to? Yeah, um, what Reuven said earlier about the black hat and the white hat, that, that's so critical. And I couldn't agree with you more about culture. I think everything that happens is culture sourced. Uh, the Chinese don't have a black and white worldview. It's all gray and it's all holistic. You look at Chinese medicine, you walk into the doctor and you say, my shoulder hurts and he says, show me your tongue. What? But it's because they see everything as being connected. And, and we see it also in Chinese policy. Uh, and when it comes to Iran, China is um, seeing a much more complex playing field. Uh, for example, they don't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. They do not believe that Iran would use nuclear power against Israel, even though they say they will. They think it's only to get a seat at the table in recognition. They do not like doing business with Iran. The Iranians are extremely difficult to do business with. There's no love loss between the two sides. The Iranians feel that the Chinese are taking advantage of them because of their specific situation. And um, uh, but, but the big uh, boogeyman, if you might say, for the Chinese is the United States. China has pegged the US as the troublemaker. It says that the U.S. policy is the cause of the Ukrainian war. The U.S. is the big disruptor in the Middle East, not Iran. The U.S. is the problem. So uh, China will use the Iran situation to try to balance between not letting Iran get out of hand, but trying to uh, contain, if I can say, U.S. And uh, in the meantime, they're getting uh, cheap oil from the Iranians, so it's a good situation. Can for Israel, should Israel, try to use China to mediate between it and Iran? Up to now, there has been no meeting of the minds between Jerusalem and Tehran, and uh, not even a track to uh, sort of, of meeting between uh, non-official experts to try and see whether um, there can be any compromise between Israel and Iran. Can China serve as a bridge? 
Um, many believe China could. Um, I, I'm one of them. Uh, the Chinese say they can't necessarily. At the same time, the question is, would they? Would China do it? Up until now, I think uh, even pre-1992, certain people were sent to China uh, with respect to Iran, uh, talking about Iran. So that's been, that discussion has been taking place for decades, and we haven't really seen the needle move. There are, there's one thing that would move that needle, and that's if China believes that Israel would carry out a preemptive attack on Iran that would set the neighborhood on fire and cause a notable 6% or more reduction in oil uh, flowing from he- the Middle East to China, that's when the Chinese stop and say, okay, what can we do? But that um, uh, needs to be pressed forward. And there has to be a, a, an Israeli sense of imminent danger that that can happen, where the United States doesn't put a stranglehold on Israel's ability. So no preemptive diplomacy on China's part? They are waiting for the crisis and only then they... They don't believe there's going to be that kind of crisis. And only when they do believe it, that's when they will definitely act. Reuven, um, one of the um, Americans' uh, bones of contention with Israel has to do with infrastructure projects where Chinese uh, entities are involved in bidding or even in the actual uh, projects uh, themselves already. Uh, in the Tel Aviv uh, area, uh, we see in uh, the uh, underground and light uh, rail, there was this uh, Chinese move to acquire a port in Haifa. And obviously, the Americans are uh, objecting to that, uh, even because they think that uh, whatever a Chinese financial or commercial entity does, the uh, information goes back to a central location in Beijing per a law, uh, which um, is in the books in in China. Uh, Is it a real uh, threat? Is it a real issue regarding Chinese investment in Israel? I think this is one of those issues that when you deal with China, you have to be very diplomatic, and it's a sensitive issue. Uh, Maybe the fact that we're aligned with the United States makes it easier for me to say that if it's a great concern for the United States, it must be a great concern for me. I think Israel made many, we talked about, we aired a lot of dirty laundry today. We did stupid things in the past. And also recently in this issue, sometimes maybe we didn't take the American warnings seriously enough. Another thing I'll say is I think the Chinese stop at nothing to achieve what they want to achieve. You see this in every field. You see this in technology. So I think certainly it's like discussing if Huawei Huawei products are, you know, are are funneling information, yes or no. Again, by law, the way their system works, yes, that's the way it works. And if you know how system works, there's, of course, there's a back door and everything is, everything is there. So I think, yes, it is a concern. Even the mistakes that we made, we have to try to contain them now. Um, and, and again, the big, big difference between people on the ground. I met the Chinese, by the way, working on the railway. And this week I'm going to meet another organization where Chinese are embedded in the Israeli management together. On the ground, again, you, you, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't hear of any such things. Uh, they're just building good infrastructure, you know, to improve uh, commerce. Uh, but and I, so yes, I think I think it's a serious, serious matter. We haven't been doing enough. We have to be better aligned, at least with the United States, and making sure that it's monitored and done carefully. It's very, it's very interesting to see a young Mao crane hovering above your old headquarters at the, the Air Force compound uh, in Tel Aviv. I have to throw in one one sentence. Um, the most critical thing Israel needs to do is start to know China. 
if you don't know anything about China, you look at it from whatever perspective you have, be it working with the US, maybe Russia, China is none of those players. And it's not really about aligning with the United States or respecting the United States. Of course, we have to do those things. But to, um, to be more successful with the United States and more successful with China, understand something about how China thinks, how China works, and then you can set your own policy that will be effective going forward with everybody. This is why you're here, Caris, uh, and successfully so, if I may uh, add. Danny, what is the way forward uh, for Israel regarding China in 30 seconds or less? Well, I would say for the uh, duration and uh, certainly in the last, in the, in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years we are with the United States, uh, I mean, longer period, when we talk generational uh, view, depends where the U.S. will be, then we will may have to go and court China much more forcefully than we do now. Ruben, your view. The best comment here was given by Carice. I would just add to that respect. I think that would help diplomacy worldwide and also here to know and respect. And just like we expect uh, respect for our history, for our troubles, you know, for our concerns, the Chinese have a lot of that, a lot of, they carry a lot on their back from difficult history, and we have to know to respect them and work with them and understand them better. Karis, just to wrap it all up, if they watch this show in Beijing, what is their comment? We knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they uh, know everything, and um, they have one of uh, the foremost leaders now in Xi Jinping. Uh, when other leaders come and go, and Putin, who is uh, even more of a veteran, is uh, teetering, apparently the Chinese are holding on to their own uh, leader for the foreseeable future. By the way, the Chinese as a mediator, do they have any experience because uh, with other countries, with other regions? I that will sure. be our topic for one of the future. <laughs> we wrote a paper on it, so happy to okay. talk about it. So thank you very much, Karis uh, Witty with uh, Signal Ambassador and Deputy Foreign Minister Daniel Elon and Reserve Colonel Ruven Ben Shalom. And we will be back uh, with another edition of Powers in Play on TV7 News Israel. In the meantime, goodbye from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.